Hello and welcome to Culture Exchange, a podcast at the intersection of the humanities and cultural diplomacy. I'm your host, Terry Harvey, Vice President of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy. This podcast series explores the impact of the arts and culture on diplomatic relations across the world through discussions with cultural diplomacy experts. On this Culture Exchange episode, we will explore the role of Chinatowns in America and how they have played an instrumental role in the urban landscape as centers of community, economic activity, and cultural preservation. This segment will cover the importance of these diverse communities within the American urban landscape, as well as the current threat of gentrification many Chinatowns across the United States are experiencing. To help our audience better understand this phenomenon, We've invited two filmmakers, Penny Lee and Lisa Mao, to discuss their latest film, A Tale of Three Chinatowns, which can be found on Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV. Penny Lee is the co-producer and editor of A Tale of Three Chinatowns. Her editing portfolio includes documentaries, cable network TV series, independent films, as well as promotional videos for government agencies, private corporations, and nonprofit organizations. Penny produced, directed, and edited the award-winning short documentary, Through Chinatown's Eyes, April 1968, and also a collection of short stories about Chinese-American veterans. Some of her cable network clients include Discovery Channel, National Geographic Television, and Travel Channel. Her passion for storytelling continues to drive her to create and produce content highlighting the immigrant experience in the United States, with a primary focus on the Chinese-American voice. Lisa Mao is the director, writer, and co-producer of A Tale of Three Chinatowns. With a career in nonfiction television, Lisa is responsible for the creation and launch of more than 500 hours of programming for channels including History Channel, National Geographic Channel, HGTV, Animal Planet, Investigation Discovery, and Travel Channel. Her credits include Travel Channel's Man vs. Food Nation, Extreme Forensics on ID, and Deadly Shootouts on Reels. In addition to her television work, she also wrote and produced the award-winning short documentary Through Chinatown's Eyes, April 1968. Lisa is committed to helping people share their stories to reveal the complex fabric of the human condition. Thank you. I'm really grateful for all of you for joining us. I want to first start off with our director and the producer. I wonder if you could share a little bit more with our audience about your film, A Tale for Three Chinatowns, and what you really hope your audiences will take away from this documentary. Hi, thanks, TK. Our film, A Tale of Three Chinatowns, it's a documentary that looks at three different Chinatowns in the United States and looks at their current state of health. We look at Boston Chinatown, Chicago Chinatown, and Washington, D.C.'s Chinatown, and we explore why they are in the current states that they're in. Chicago's is thriving, D.C.'s is a shell of itself, and Boston's is fighting for its survival. So we interview former and current residents, as well as activists and local officials, to try to understand how each of these Chinatowns finds itself in the current state that they're in. How did you decide on these three? It sounds like, you know, they all are in different stages of evolution, right? Did you feel that these three were really emblematic of of the different phases of these centers? Yeah, that's a great question. When Penny and I, Penny Lee, my co-producer, and I were looking at this topic, um, you know, D.C. is right in our backyard, and we were very familiar with Washington, D.C. and its story. Penny can speak more to, to her relationship with D.C., but it felt like it was an obvious choice because it at one point, it had been a thriving neighborhood, and now 
really it's it's not. I mean, it's a thriving neighborhood as a neighborhood, as a Chinatown, it's debatable whether or not it should still be called Chinatown. And then Chicago's was another obvious choice because it is the one Chinatown that has been growing over the last 100 years. And we thought, how is that? We have two very big contrasts here. And then, you know, in the middle, we were looking for a Chinatown that is struggling, which there are many. So we had many to choose from. And, you know, Boston, it felt like there was a lot of activism going on also in terms of challenges. You know, there was commercial development as well as institutional development. And it felt like there was a lot of players and stakeholders involved in that story. Yeah. Hi, TK. So in addition to that, because I grew up in D.C. Chinatown and I have the connection with Washington, D.C. and the people that live here and who used to live here and so forth, we were able to get the people to speak in our film. And also, same thing for Boston. I knew some friends who knew people and they were able to just agree to be in our film and we interviewed them. So I think it was also very important that in our film, we try to not use a narrator and use first person, interview the primary sources and keep it real and authentic. And so that was one of our goals that we wanted to meet in producing and making this film. Yeah, stepping back a little bit in terms of the origins of these urban communities and really how they were rooted in America's racist exclusionary laws, really how important they were and still are in terms of maintaining a sense of cultural identity, a sense of belonging. I wonder if you could say a few words uh, along those lines. Yeah, we, we do touch on this at the beginning of the film, just sort of the the origins of Chinatown, you know, in San Francisco at the end of the uh, 1800s. Really, Chinatowns were sanctuaries. You know, you had immigrants coming in from primarily Guangdong province, coming in for, you know, first you know, the gold rush, and then, of course, the railroads. And it wasn't so much like people were accepting them with open arms. There was violence against them. And these immigrants, they had to collect in numbers to feel safe. So that's really, in terms of the origins of Chinatown historically, that's really where their origins come from. Now, when you look at 20th century, the turn of the century, and what we envision as Chinatowns today, you know, those Chinatowns also, you know, again, they were, you know, when you talk about several generations later, again, they were sanctuaries. They were places where newcomers could find resources. Obviously, there's a lot of familial connection in the Chinese culture. In Chinatown, a lot of the families that came over created their own family associations, um, and they really were used as, as resources for newcomers, you know, in terms of getting jobs, you know, figuring out how to, how to pay for things, housing, education, and whatnot. Chinatown and its role has changed over the, the decades, of course. And then, you know, truthfully, we can't ignore the, um, you know, the restrictive covenants that make up much of the 20th century in terms of U.S. cities. You know, I think most people, many people don't even know what they are. You know, we refer to, you know, terms like redlining uh, and things of that nature. But, you know, in many neighborhoods, as Americans moved out of the cities or, you know, created neighborhoods within the city, developers created restrictive covenants, basically excluding, outright excluding certain groups 
from even being able to purchase a home or build a home in certain areas. You know, some of these restrictive covenants were very pointed. African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Jewish-Americans were targeted. And also they used other ways, uh, for example, saying that, you know, only a single family home can be built in this neighborhood. And it had to, you know, the budget had to be over a certain amount of money. Okay, not under a certain amount of money, but over a certain amount of money, right? So there are all these restrictive covenants that existed, and some of them didn't even expire until the 80s, as in the 1980s. So in that way, again, a neighborhood like Chinatown, it was sort of a, it was a survival mechanism. Yeah, and a lot of Chinatowns are pretty much self-contained. Like Lisa said, they have their own credit union. They have their own family associations who help other people, other people with the same surnames. We've got family associations, Lees, the Wongs, the Chins, and so forth. So they help each other for a long time. And I can just say, like, for example, in D.C., I know of this one family, and their grandfather came here in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. They could not, you can, as a Chinese person, you cannot buy anything, any land, any property for a long, long time. And they rent it all these years. And then later on, as the sons and the sons, later on, the renters that they rented, the landlord, when the Chinese were able to purchase, then the landlord decided to give them rights to purchase that property. And so that's how their family kept these buildings um, within the family all these years. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think you said it uh, really well, Lisa, that was sort of a survival by assimilation. And, you know, so it gave this this sort of sanctuary for these communities to thrive and maintain their own personal and national identities, right? I would imagine, you know, as this evolved and maybe even more in recent times, you know, the neighboring communities have perhaps begun to value Chinatowns as a, as a glimpse into new cultures and new cuisines and, and different types of fashion. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly in tangible terms the impact from a cross-cultural, cultural diplomacy perspective. But, you know, some Chinatowns have served as tourist destinations. We interviewed someone that says that they rarely go outside of Chinatown because I don't know, maybe they felt not safe outside. So it's also familiarity within the neighborhood. And the only time they would go outside is when they go to school, but then they come home and they come back to their community because that's where they felt safe. Yeah, and I wonder if, if we could touch on just the, the evolution of Chinatowns. Obviously, they, they are getting um, smaller and smaller by due to increased commercialization, rise of real estate leasing. You guys have already mentioned a number of points. Some would believe that this process is a deliberate approach to displace these communities. What did you find in your research, and do you have uh, more to add to that? You know, I think it's it's a complicated question and there's no one answer, right? You know, when looking at Washington, D.C.'s Chinatown, D.C. is not a state. I live in the district myself. And even though I pay taxes, we don't have representation. I mean, that's just the facts of it. So I think when you look at D.C.'s Chinatown being so close also to the Capitol and also federal buildings and whatnot, it was a different time. You know, we did another film about the riots of 68 and how those really affected Chinatown also. And again, I feel like it's not it's not apples to apples across the board with all of these Chinatowns. I think some of it 
honestly was just very practical. They're very practical things that occurred. With DC's Chinatown, many people moved to the suburbs. You know, that was going on. Um, and so people left. And as one of our interview subjects reminded, he said, you know, in the 50s and 60s, DC's Chinatown wasn't exactly the safest place. It was fun, but it wasn't exactly desirable as it is now. And which, by the way, we see in other neighborhoods too. I think about 14th Street you know, when I was a teenager and what it is now. I mean, you know, my dad, it floors him every single time I tell him like, no, there's million dollar condos now there now. And, you know, a Trader Joe's, it's very shocking. But, you know, I would say that is it intentional? Is it deliberate? Maybe in some cities it is, right? Because people are coming back into the cities. I lived in San Francisco for a number of years and I lived in North Beach, which is, which is right next to Chinatown. And they are going through something very similar because people want to live in the city again because of the services, because things are closed. People don't have to drive anymore. Is it deliberate? Yes, for some who want to make money. But, you know, we have to ask ourselves, which, you know, Lydia Lowe mentions this in the film, who is the city for? Is it for only the wealthy? You know what I mean? Like we have to really examine that as as a as a people, as a society, and and really ask that question, not just of Chinatown, but uh, for all people. I think the Chinese are also easy targets, in my opinion, in some ways, because like, for example, you know, DC Chinatown was on Pennsylvania Avenue. Okay. They building the federal triangle. We moved to H Street. Okay, fine. Now they're facing a homeless shelter on Fifth Street. And there's lots of issues that right now Chinatown is dealing with the homelessness, pooping and peeing in front of the residents' yards. And I always felt, well, the homeless people are the responsibility of the city. Well, what are they really doing to help us in Chinatown? I, I think we get a lot of lip service because we're easy targets. And I don't think that's fair, but that's reality. That's what's happening now. Yeah, and it does seem that, you know, there are no two Chinatowns the same in a lot of ways, right? You had mentioned that the urban center in Boston is doing well, maybe perhaps even growing, whereas Chicago might be in the middle middle stages, and whereas DC is a more tragic example, I guess, of gentrification. So there really is no formula in this, right? It's a question of leadership and priorities uh, for culture in a lot of ways at the at the highest yeah. level. Yeah, and, and for Chicago and Boston, it's the reverse, actually. It's oh, I'm Chicago. sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. Chicago is growing. Okay. I mean, Chicago is trying to get a public high school in their wow. neighborhood, which is amazing. Wow. That is really great. Obviously, during the the, the COVID pandemic, uh, Chinese restaurants, Chinatowns China uh, in general saw a steep decline in clientele. This led many businesses to shut down both temporarily and permanently, in fact. What sort of impact did the pandemic have on Chinatowns? And I know that that's a loaded question, uh, but perhaps you could say a few words on that. Well, right now in D.C., it's really have affected so many restaurants and properties. I mean, if you look at H Street right now, I can name three restaurants who has closed. Jackie's closed, Ming's has closed, Eat First has closed. I mean, literally there's only Tony Chang's on H Street on that side that's open. And then across the street, you got Chinatown Gardens on H Street that's open. And also Big Wong's is there. But I'm saying that a lot of the Chinese restaurants are struggling. I mean, they're only busy when the arena has a foot, you know, basketball or concert or something happening in the arena, some events happening. People come to Chinatown and sometimes they go eat, but it's just not 
as busy as it used to be. So it's it's just really declined a lot. And that's really sad to see. Yeah, I mean, I think during the early days of the pandemic, and again, we, we've seen this before in, in our history, right? Or not our current history, but in history, where a group is vilified as the source, right? And really objectified in that way. And I would say that for, you know, this pandemic, obviously, you know, it came from China and you got Chinatowns and Chinatowns as neighborhoods were targeted. I mean, not just even, you know, from the business standpoint, them shutting down, just like many restaurants, not even in Chinatown shut down. I mean, many businesses suffered, but, you know, because it's a location where there is a collection of Chinese Americans or Chinese, people of Chinese descent, you know, Asian hate was very, you know, it was a target of Asian hate. So, you know, I think that that is challenging and also not surprising. I mean, it's, you know, it's um, when I think about the Spanish flu, you know, the last pandemic from 100 years ago, was it really the Spanish flu? No, it was not. Okay, they just That's just what it was called because maybe perhaps it came from Spain. I don't know, you know, or who knows. So, yeah, I think that for Chinatown, because of its association with the origin of the, the virus, you know, that just gave people reason to hate hate on asian americans i mean i think there's more hate and more discrimination and more violence in new york that i've heard of than in dc but still it's all the same san francisco atlanta i mean it's it's really everywhere and uh, certainly a growing rise as a result of of covid unfortunately um i wonder if we could shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about the diversity within these communities um, you know, many of these Chinatowns have, you know, other significant populations of non-Chinese uh, in these neighborhoods, uh, Asian Americans that live and have businesses in these neighborhoods. Can you speak a little bit about this diversity and how has it shaped these neighborhoods or continues to? I think it's a really interesting, wonderful development that's occurred. You know, one of our interview subjects, you know, Dr. Liang, he talks about that it is a touchstone, not just for Chinese Americans, but for Asian Americans or anyone really who's interested in Asian in Asian culture, you know, I think that you know one thing that we also need to be cautious of is even the diversity within the Chinese diaspora, right? Because you know when you look at Chicago, they do have a second Chinatown. There's more Vietnamese Chinese that are there. They might be Vietnamese. They might be Vietnamese Chinese. They might be Chinese American. But you know, I think there's also that that is a nuance that many people don't realize. Right? Is that even within the Chinese diaspora, there is diversity. You know, there are Malaysian Chinese, Filipina Chinese. When I went to Vietnam for the first time, and I went to the Chinatown in uh, Saigon. I was like, whoa, there's a Chinatown here too. I mean, I just, it blew my mind. And so I think that some of that diversity, yes, is truly, you know, like Korean restaurants or, um, you know, Indian restaurants coming in, which is, again, it's great because it's these neighborhoods, Chinatown, it's born out of diversity, right? Out of inclusion. And so I think it's only natural that these other cultures are coming in, but at the same time, some of them are it's a nuance. It actually might be diversity within the diaspora. Yeah, I mean, just because it's Chinatown, it's not like if you're non-Chinese, you can't be part of this neighborhood. No, it's never, it's never been like that. 
So. Yeah, I imagine very welcoming too. And it's a kind of a nice surprise to see sort of a, a diversity ecosystem emerging in these urban centers. And uh, I think everyone stands to benefit from that. So that that's really wonderful. Just finalizing our, our discussion here, you know, if Chinatowns continue to decline, um, which seems to be a pace for most, what do our cities stand to lose? Uh, and, and really is a capstone here. Is there anything our audience can do to get engaged in the process? Wow. I think shop in Chinatown, eat in Chinatown, continue to go to Chinatown and wherever you go, whether it be other cities and other states, if there's a Chinatown, go check it out. <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah, yeah. And just to build off of Penny's uh, response, I mean, it, it's also about, I mean, you know, what does a city stand to lose? What does a, a culture stand to lose, right? I mean, the great thing about the United States of America, you know, I think that in our ambition, we are inclusive. We are a nation, except for, of course, those who were originally here, we are primarily a nation of immigrants. And Chinatown is just another avenue way of really bringing that through. What can people do? They can, yes, first, you know, of course, you know, put your money where your mouth is and, you know, go out there and, and support businesses, but also just also to be, you know, active and also to share what your experience has been to get other people excited to then go there or to learn more. I mean, I think that that's one of the best things to do is just to spread awareness of the place and also the culture and what you can find there. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. I want to thank you both for sharing your time with us. Again, the film is titled A Tale of Three Chinatowns. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, TK. Thank you for joining us today on Culture Exchange, a podcast that examines the impact of cultural diplomacy in its many forms on global relations. We'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for funding this podcast, our guests on this episode for taking the time to share their expertise, our podcast editor, Ed Bishop, and our listeners for taking the time to engage in the world of cultural diplomacy.